Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Karen Kassler, State House Bureau Chief for Ohio Public Radio and Television, and I'm pleased to introduce today's forum, a conversation on Ohio Senate Bill 3. Last November, Ohio voters pretty overwhelmingly rejected Issue 1, a constitutional amendment that would reduce penalties for certain drug offenders, taking on Ohio's opioid epidemic and large prison population. However, the measure and its defeat did start a conversation on criminal justice reform in Ohio. On March 6th, of this year, Ohio Senate Bill 3, a comprehensive plan for drug sentencing reform, was introduced. The bill reduces penalties for possession of illegal drugs, but toughens punishments for drug trafficking, and also contains some criminal justice reforms that resemble those proposed in Issue 1. While likely to undergo some changes, the Ohio Senate hopes to pass Senate Bill 3 by the summer recess, and if passed eventually, the bill will become state law. I'm here today with several key leaders to discuss the evolution and design of Senate Bill 3 and how it could pave the way for future criminal justice reform. Joining me on stage, going down from the end there, Senator John Eklund, one of the primary sponsors of the bill and the head of the Senate Judiciary Committee. He represents the 18th District, which includes Portage County, along with parts of Lake and Geauga Counties. Representative Stephanie House of Ohio's 11th District is a co-sponsor of the bill for the Ohio House of Representatives. She was first elected in 2014 and represents most of Cleveland. Zach Klein is the Columbus City Attorney. He was sworn in on January 1st, 2018, after previously serving as a member of Columbus City Council since 2011. He, along with Republican Franklin County Prosecutor Ron O'Brien, crafted many of the reforms in Senate Bill 3. And Ohio Senate President Larry Obhoff, a co-sponsor of the bill. He represents the people of the 22nd Senate District, which includes Medina, Ashland, and Richland Counties, as well as portions of Holmes Counties. So with that, let's get started. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. I'm going to start with you, uh, Zach Klein. You and Ron O'Brien were rivals at one point. You both ran for Franklin County Prosecutor. You lost. I did. <laughs> but last what year... What a great way to start. I know. <laughs> but, but last year, and this is interesting, last year you teamed up. You teamed up to oppose Issue 1, first of all, but also come up with what you call a better alternative to Issue 1. So what makes this that you brought to the legislature better and different than what voters overwhelmingly rejected last fall? It's a great start-off question because what we're uh, suggesting and proposing through Senate Bill 3 is not Issue 1. When you think back to the Issue 1 campaign, you heard a lot of criticism, whether you agreed with it or not. Uh, a lot of criticism about how there's going to be a proliferation of fentanyl, primarily on our playgrounds, if you remember the ads, uh, that uh, you're basically eliminating drug courts because any offense for a, a downgraded misdemeanor uh, conviction for low-level drug possession under Issue 1 would not be jailable. Uh, and then there was also the 25% good time credit for folks who were in prison that applied for arsonists, uh, human traffickers, child pornographers. So within the framework of that and knowing that uh, that was essentially very controversial, what uh, Ron O'Brien and I did was craft a plan that took what we call you know, the good of Issue 1 uh, and uh, discarded the bad of Issue 1. And, and that way we were able to come up with a plan that I think is palatable to folks that understand that the system is 
is broken, it needs changes. So this is a, a legislative measure, not constitutional. Uh, it does downgrade most felony four and felony five low-level drug possession to an unclassified misdemeanor, with the exception of fentanyl and date rape drugs, which remains a felony, which addresses that particular se uh, section. It also maintains judicial discretion uh, that allows a judge, uh, whether it's common police court or municipal court, that if the offender in front of them says, look, judge, I'm not going to drug court no matter what you do, uh, to give the judge the, judi the judicial discretion to be able to send that person to jail uh, for up to one year, a couple days up to one year, uh, and it does not have the good time credit. Uh, so really all of the criticism that was openly aired about issue one is not present in Senate Bill 3, uh, but Senate Bill 3, in my opinion, is an important step forward to really give folks the opportunity and hope they deserve to transform their lives and be productive members of society, to be the moms and dads they want to be. You got a quick start on that. You did that right after issue one failed. That was last General Assembly, new General Assembly now. And so, Senator Eklund, you are a sponsor of Senate Bill 3. And the idea that it's Senate Bill 3 really indicates that it's a priority bill, right? I'd like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> no, now, it does. You described it as a first effort and that you hope people don't go screaming down Broad Street in a panic when they see what comes. So what were you worried that people would be afraid of about this bill? And, and what does your bill do that's maybe even different from what uh, Zach Klein just described? Well, let's start with the, the first question. And what I, I'm constantly not concerned about, I guess is the word, uh, is that people don't fully appreciate the legislative process. That legislation is introduced, it's an idea. It goes through an exercise of hearings and testimony and meetings between interested parties to at the end of the day come up with something that is acceptable enough to enough people to become law. Uh, sometimes bills are introduced and they seem rather far out there. That's not to say that that's ultimately what is going to be passed by the legislature, if it's ever passed and signed by the governor. So that was my main point there is uh, everybody take a deep breath. This is, what we're, this is where we're starting from and it's going to go through a process uh, that will hopefully make it better and uh, as I sometimes like to say, make everyone equally miserable. <laughs> so President Obhoff, I should have maybe addressed the priority bill question to you because you set the priorities for the Ohio Senate. Is this a priority bill and, and what does it do do you think? You were opposed to issue one. So what does this do that you feel is different than issue one? I think that what this bill does is what the proponents of issue one said they wanted to do. But when, when you listen to their rhetoric, uh, it was it was very positive um, and, and sounded like a step in the right direction. And when you looked at the actual ins and outs of how it operated, um, the, the language of the proposal was, I thought, significantly different. Um, and, and so what we're trying to do is accomplish the goals that people were talking about, uh, making sure that if you're an addict, you can get treatment and that if you're a a low-level offender, a nonviolent offender, uh, that you have the opportunity to stay in your community and uh, and, and build your life back together, um, as opposed to uh, sending people to state prison um, when, frankly, the penalty might exceed uh, the uh, seriousness of your offense. And then you you spend time in prison. You have very little job prospects when you come out. Maybe it breaks up your family. Um, you're not going to have an easy time rejoining the community. Uh, and what we want is for people to have a second chance. And what we're trying to do is separate um, people who've maybe made a few mistakes in their life or maybe made a lot of mistakes uh, from people who are 
truly predators, people who are harming our communities. Uh, so uh, this bill would treat, uh, for example, fentanyl traffickers very different than it would treat somebody who is a drug user who happens to have uh, some small amount for personal possession. And I think that the law should draw that distinction because those types of offenses are not really similar in any way. At Representative House, you're the president of the Ohio Legislative Black Caucus. You have the distinction of being the only person on the stage who endorsed issue one. So what, uh, you, you didn't see the problems with issue one that its critics did. So is this better? Does it encompass some of the things that you liked about issue one, obviously? Is there something missing here? Well, I will follow with uh, the sponsor. It's a starting place, right? <laughs> we know it's a starting place. Um, and, you know, looking through the eyes of members of the Ohio Legislative Black Caucus, um, we are just, uh, just concerned of just the history of the criminal justice system and the over-incarceration of people of color, you know? And looking, um, seeing how, what happened at the ballot box and understanding um, Legislation takes time, and we have partners that are at least willing to like listen and hear and work with us so that we really can help people and not incarcerate people and destroy lives because that's what we are doing. Um, we've gone through this process, like even just in, the, in some of our the budget hearings and having conversations with DRC about what actually does a sentence mean. You know, Zach and I have had conversations. What actually does this, what is it tied to? Is it tied to rehabilitation? You know, improving matters. What's the purpose of labeling somebody a felon? Mm -hmm. You know, and I think this is beginning to give us an opportunity to really, as President Ophoff indicated, to really help those who need to help, you know, help, and then those who really are dangerous and harmful and destroying our communities to put them where they need to be and handle them. Um, but again, this is a starting place, and we have there, when you see there's a willingness and people are taking some of the good things to make communities better, you know, we would be remiss and we would really be failing our constituents if we didn't really join, join with um, our, our counterparts in both, both chambers and on both sides of the aisle to make this a reality for Ohioans. I see a lot of nodding and agreement here. Well, one thing that President House touched upon that I think is really important part of this conversation is the downgrade of felony four and felony five drug possession to a misdemeanor. And uh, this is not, I think, a word, and I'll coin it. We have over felonized. We have over felonized the way that we treat folks. And, and, and that felony conviction carries with it both a legal stigma and a social stigma. When you talk to many employer, employers, for whatever reason, they choose that like, we just simply can't hire felons, even if it's a nonviolent, low-level drug uh, possession instance. So in taking a significant and bold step forward, like creating a Senate Bill 3 and passing it, it gives people the chance for rehabilitation and for them to turn their life around and become productive members of society without having that felony stigma. You know, we want to give people the opportunity to pull themselves up by the bootstraps, but if you give them a felony, you take off their boots. Uh, and, that, and that's not to, to say that there aren't bad people that are rapists and murderers and robbers that deserve to be felons. Uh, but we have to have a complete reset in the criminal justice system, in my opinion, of how we look at individuals and look at the criminogenic reasons why people commit crime, driven by drug addiction, driven by mental health, and really start asking ourselves, in the very small number of cases, they are really bad people. In the vast majority of, of cases, like they're folks that need help. And the criminal justice system should reflect that in the way that we're treating individuals and, and actually ultimately making our society safer. Because if you don't treat the underlying reason why someone commits a crime, 
then there's no way that you're going to reduce recidivism rates. There's no way you're going to save taxpayer dollars. And you're borderlying on that definition of insanity, of doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results. So of course that person's going to break into your car to steal change to go feed their addiction. you gotta, you got to treat that underlying reason. Otherwise, it's, there's no justice to it. I well, think it's, uh, I'm sorry, Mr. President, but uh, I think it's important to remember when, what we're talking about when we're talking about changing felonies to misdemeanors, right? We're changing felony four, fourth degree and fifth degree felonies to what we call an unclassified misdemeanor. That is the proposal. For an unclassified misdemeanor, an individual is susceptible to being put in jail for 360, up to 364 days. That's a year. That's not small potatoes, number one. Number two, we need to remember that under current Ohio law, uh, there is a presumption for those who are convicted or plead guilty to a felony four or a felony five that they not go to prison, but rather they get diverted to some kind of a community control sanction of some kind. So, you know, this, this change where we're going from felonies to misdemeanors can sound to some people like, holy smokes, what are you doing? Uh, I don't view it as that significant a change from a penal criminal justice standpoint, but boy, it stands to make a world of difference on the back end uh, when somebody is done. Because when an employer is, is checking out somebody's background and they see felony, I don't think they go to the case file and find out, well, what was it exactly that this person did? What were the circumstances that, that led to this situation? No. They see the scarlet letter, and that's the end of that. So I think the, the redesignation will have significantly, stands to have significantly more impact on the back end of the process where we're trying to help people um, than it will have on the front end, which is to say the criminal justice process. Well, and I think it's important to point out that uh, Ohio over the last eight, eight and a half years or so has focused in many ways on a smart on crime approach uh, where uh, we had significant uh, sentencing reforms in 2011 uh, in House Bill 86. Uh, we've had collateral sanction reforms uh, for uh, some public employment. We've done a, a, a bill that uh, you know bans the box. Uh, and uh, Senator Eklund actually sponsored uh, Senate Bill 66, which became effective last October, um, which continued to make some progress on that front. So, uh, for example, um, as, as Senator Eklund pointed out, uh, for, for nonviolent fourth and fifth degree felonies, there is currently in Ohio law um, a presumption against jail time. And, um, and we have expanded uh, opportunities for community control sanctions instead of, instead of jail or prison. Uh, we have significantly increased uh, the opportunities for intervention in lieu of conviction. And uh, as we've done these things, we've seen that it's actually made our communities safer. Uh, so um, if you go back and, and look at some of the uh, public statements by uh, former DRC Director Gary Moore over the years about our recidivism rate compared to the national average, we are significantly lower. Because as we've taken these types of measures, uh, and, and arguably, I, I think nobody on this stage thinks that we've done enough of them or, or we wouldn't be introducing right. Senate Bill 3. But as we've moved in that direction, um, we have seen uh, a national recidivism rate that hovers in the upper 40s, and we've seen Ohio in the upper 20s. Um, so that means that it's better for offenders to follow these policies, but it's also it's also improves public safety and it's better for all of us. Well, we 
you folks have been in agreement here. I, it's now my job to bring in people who may not agree, and there's a group of uh, prosecutors who are concerned. Uh, they say that they don't like the idea of reclassification because they say there's no indication that it promotes treatment, public safety, or workforce development. And they say reclassification can actually make people think that drugs maybe aren't as dangerous as they are and could result in more experimentation and, and more addiction. So let me ask the panel, what do you say? Go right ahead. Jump right in, Senator Eklund. You know, it's uh, the Prosecuting Attorneys Association uh, has been and remains a very thoughtful contributor to the dialogue around legislation in the Judiciary Committee or criminal justice area in particular for a long time, and they continue to be, no question about that. But um, I think at the end of the day, when you're talking about the classification of a crime, and we'll have testimony on this and, have, and ask somebody to bring forth some evidence, which is oftentimes lacking in these conversations, <laughs> uh, that, if, that reclassifying something to a misdemeanor does or does not promote treatment. Um, well, if the prosecutors say it doesn't, but the prosecutors would also say that a felony designation promotes abstinence or is, is a disincentive to using drugs in the first place. Well, if the label matters on one end, how does it not matter on the other end? And the long and the short of it is, I'm guessing, that it probably doesn't matter, at least not on the question of deterrence or encouraging, but it sure does make a difference, as I've said, on the back end uh, where people wind up when they've been through the process and presumably tried to get their lives back together. So I welcome the input from the prosecutors. They've got many pages of comments on the bill, uh, some, of them, some of which uh, are, are, are important. For example, the, the original bill would have legalized trace amounts, possession of trace amounts of controlled substances. This is like 25 one-thousandths of an ounce, okay? Um, but then it was pointed out to us re relatively recently, in part by the prosecutors, that that's a problem because if a, a, a drug-detecting dog, which is, are used to great effect here in Ohio, uh, approaches a car and, and hits on a controlled substance, which is to say they, they sniff and they say, there's a controlled substance in this car. Right now, the, that is probable cause for the enforcement folks to do a search of the car to see what they can find. But the dog can't tell you how much they're sniffing, you see? So it could be hitting on a trace amount or it could be hitting on five kilos, unknown at that point. But if the trace amount is not illegal, then the dog hitting on the car is probably not probable cause to actually conduct the search. And so we're gonna to try to fix that. And we're doing a little legal research on that, on that point, but it makes a world of sense. So they have input, we're taking it all into consideration and, uh, and I hope they keep it up, all right? But uh, with some facts would be helpful. <laughs> yeah, so I will say this. Um, I think prosecutors just come looking at, their, their job is to convict. Right, um, and the OLBC has actually started this process so that we actually, our members can sit down with prosecutors within the association to understanding what's the end goal 
Right. Like, I think that's one of the things I think many people don't think about. What is our end goal? We want people to change and be better when they come back. For the overwhelming majority of our Ohioan citizens that go into the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections, the overwhelming majority of them coming out are worse off. That's a fact. And so this is the thing where we know we are very concerned with how we are prosecuting people because it's not just about what you did, but we have to go deeper about what happened to you. How can we help them? And that's the thing, like, and working, you know, Zach Klein, I'm really excited. He's doing Prosecutor's Impact, you know. And, you know, if there's some real innovative things going on in our nation to help us think about doing things differently in our jobs. I mean, I was having a conversation with a prosecutor, you know, just really talking about the disparities in how people are arrested and charged and criminalized. And then it was like, well, are you saying we're not, um, he said, are you trying to tell me that we don't, um, convict uh, white people the way that they need to? I said, why well, are you telling me black people, you know, are they committing more crime? And we know the answer is no, but we know there's a problem in our system and we need prosecutors. Don't say everything is wrong, but start having a different viewpoint of help us get to a place in our prosecuting, the, the prosecution process to help make people, Ohioans better after they are pro prosecuted and convicted, that they'll be better when they come back to our community. That's what we need our prosecutors to do, and I hope in this process, because they're needed, right? How can they help us get there? Not just be so poo-poo, no, no. And now you know, on issue one, I was very um, adamant in working with, like, in conversations or debates with prosecutors and judges about, I wanna see the champions, the prosecutors and the judges who are the champions for people to be rehabilitated back into our community. Not just this over-criminalization of people, because like I said, when you ask the majority of people who have been incarcerated, are they better? And the answer right now in 2019 is still no. We all are failing. So we, got, we have to think differently and do our jobs differently. And I think it's important to ask the question in reverse. Like, show me a metric that says that by giving out a felony for a low-level drug position or possession, you've actually seen success. And I think there, the answer is no. There, there's really no constructive way that we view it the current way we, we handle drugs and addiction uh, that I think is a successful metric. And when you anecdotally go to a drug court graduation, which we have very successful drug courts in our municipal court in Franklin County, you hear anecdotally from, from the men and women that go through, it's, Judge, it was that fourth time that you put me in jail for one or two nights. It, it's never, Judge, it was that fourth time you put me in jail for a year or two years. But it was that moment of clarity that these individuals are then able to recognize that they, they need help. Uh, secondly, that I want to bring up, secondly I want to bring up is the fact that domestic violence is a misdemeanor in the state of Ohio. OVI is a misdemeanor in the state of, uh, state of Ohio. I would, I would say and challenge anyone that says that, well, you're just normalizing this use for our children by calling it a misdemeanor to say that, are we normalizing beating our spouse? Because that is a misdemeanor. I think we all would say no. It's a very serious charge. Are we normalizing drinking and driving? I think the answer is no. That's a very serious charge. And we, we teach our kids, we teach each other and try to hold each other accountable and say that like, we shouldn't drink or drive. Those are still misdemeanors. You still can go to jail for that. And to think that somehow an, an addict in the throes of their addiction is gonna like sit back and say, well, I could be a felon if I do this. How about the fact is like, hey, you could face jail time or prison time. The reality is it is incarceration and, and the judge still has discretion to do that. 
President well, I, I think there is one important point uh, that, uh, that I'd like to hit on, which is that um, while there may be disagreements about whether or not it, uh, some things that are now fifth-degree felonies, for example, should be unclassified misdemeanors or maybe first-degree misdemeanors instead, uh, I, I, I think that to, to the extent that we've heard from prosecutors and judges in particular about this issue and, and that they'd like things to remain felonies, they're also coming at the issue for the same reason we are. Um, they're taking the position largely that uh, if we want someone to get into treatment, if we want them to get cleaned up and turn their life around, they need to have um, the, the fear of a felony hanging over their head. I, I think that, that Zach raises a, a pretty legitimate question about is that really true? Is it the classification that makes people change their behavior or is it actually serving uh, prison time or the fear of actually serving prison time? Uh, but, um, but I am cautiously optimistic uh, about the opportunities for us to try to work out uh, some agreement on these issues because they're focused on the same things, they just have a different way of getting there. Um, their, their concern is uh, if it's not a felony, you can't get people into treatment, you can't get them to turn their lives around, so you have to hold that over their head. But maybe at the back end, if people go into treatment, um, let's, make the, uh, let's make the charges go away. Let's uh, not have a conviction on your record for the rest of your life. And, and um, what, what uh, the, the panelists up here are talking about is, okay, let's just classify it the way we think it ought to be. And the fear of going to jail for 364 <clears throat> days will be what makes you go into treatment and, and turn your life around. And so the real question is um, trying to figure out legislatively which of those two options uh, or something in between is actually what works. But um, in all the discussions that I've had with prosecutors and with judges about this, um, we all want the same end goal. And if you all want the same thing and you're all focused on this, the same end result, um, you can work out the differences in between. Now, one of the criticisms of issue one was the idea of drug courts and that uh, it would potentially blunt the use of drug courts, which prosecutors have said have been a good thing, <clears throat> judges have said have been a good thing. How does this uh, Senate Bill 3 specifically address the use of drug courts and, and trying to, does it strengthen them in, in some way? In, in some way, if I may, I, I believe it does, and it's, we're in the process of working out the details on that particular issue, but the, the object is going to be uh, to structure the bill <clears throat> and what do we do with these soon-to-be, hopefully, uh, unclassified misdemeanors? Where should, into which court should they go? Misdemeanors many times go to the municipal courts, although the common pleas courts in Ohio have jurisdiction over misdemeanors. Um, and what has been made clear to us is that the drug courts and other specialty courts, which I'm sure uh, Mr. Klein here can give a great uh, exposition on, are, are, depending upon where you are in Ohio, they're housed in different courts. Some are in the common pleas courts, some are in the, uh, uh, the municipal courts, and, and what we're trying to do is, is structure this jurisdictional question in such a way that each community can decide for itself with the cooperation of their prosecutors, you know, where are we going to send these low-level possession drug cases uh, with a view towards maximizing or enhancing the, uh, the availability of the specialty dockets like drug courts and, uh, and at the same time allowing local communities to allocate their resources, whatever they have, in such a way that's efficient and purposeful for them. So it's a, it's a good question, but, and, and there's been some suggestion that out in California, for example, when they, they, they changed the classification of a lot of possession offenses that uh, the use of drug courts fell off somewhat. Um, 
I don't know why that happened, but we are working very hard to make sure that we do not tie the hands of or, or diminish the value of things like drug courts uh, in Senate Bill 3. But you also don't want to overwhelm the municipal courts. Well, exactly so. And, 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 but then again, some, some municipal courts are doing a doggone good job with their drug courts. Am I right, uh, Prosecutor Klein? That's correct. And, and so uh, it, it really does depend upon the resources available locally. And you know, anything we can do to, I think, uh, build some flexibility into anything we do that accommodates the uh, particularized needs and limitations of our local political subdivisions, I think it's a positive thing to do. I would just to add Absolutely. to that. Please just do. The opportunity, even with drug court, right? As it stands right now, everybody that is fighting addiction doesn't get the opportunity to get drug court, right? And so understanding now how addiction works, there's opportunity now to actually expand the opportunities for people to get the help that they need. We know that drug courts are successful. If you give someone some time and you give them the intervention and the treatment and the support that they need, positive things happen. But you can't say, oh, this was your third time, you, you, you don't meet the criteria. So I think there is an opportunity now to at least expand the opportunities for people who are dealing with lifelong you know, um, trauma issues and dealing with their addiction to get the help that they need. Drug courts work. I'm a big proponent of drug courts. Uh, it's certainly, you need to have funding. You need to have support from your prosecutors and your judges and your clerks. Uh, but we have a very successful model in Franklin County that we're proud of. Uh, to, to echo what um, the chairman said, I think the important idea here is let each community decide for themselves. Uh, and that's what, and throughout this robust discussion on this particular jurisdictional issue is one that I've been advocating for. If it's good for Washington County, the way they currently do it, which is where I grew up in southeastern Ohio, a little town called Belpre, if it's good for Washington County, let, let Washington County keep that structure. But it may not be the same structure as Franklin County. So each community should be able to decide for itself what resources and the way, uh, how they divvy up the resources and the way they tackle this problem, but it shouldn't be necessarily driven directly from the state house. Any final thoughts on that? Um, I, I would just add that that's, that's one of the, again, the, the ins and outs of trying to get the legislation done is, is looking at um, what downstream effects it might have. Uh, and it's easy to say, okay, let's make everything a misdemeanor. Um, then if you do and you flood municipal courts in a way that they don't have the resources for, um, you, you cause a, a separate problem. and. Uh, I, I think that as we work it our way through the legislative process, we have all of those things in mind, and our goal is not to overwhelm one court while cutting the jurisdiction of another or um, send so many cases to one court that they don't have the resources to handle it. So um, we are cognizant of those issues, and we are working to make sure that whatever we do is funded properly uh, and, uh, and that courts are able to do what they need to do. But. Um, um, you know, this is why legislation takes time and we don't pass <laughs> bills on uh, January 10th uh, that, that we introduced on the 9th. Today we are listening to a forum uh, conversation on Ohio Senate Bill 3 featuring Senator John Eklund, Representative Stephanie House, Zach Klein, Columbus City Attorney, and Ohio Senate President Larry Alpoff. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, or those of you joining via our radio broadcast or live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club. <laughs> and our staff will try to work it into the program. Holding the microphones today, our City Club intern, or I'm gonna screw this up, or Orimulo or Asanya. Hi, I'm sorry. <laughs> and content coordinator, Bliss Davis. 
Do we have the first question ready? Hello, um, thank you for being here today and for sharing your perspectives with us. Um, something that came up a few times throughout the panel was the need to um, collect facts, to collect expert testimony, and um, also to ensure you're eliminating unintended consequences of this legislation to the best of your capacity. I'm wondering how you've engaged community members, individuals, um, groups whose lives have been directly impacted by incarceration or addiction in order to ensure that their expert testimony is leveraged in drafting this legislation and that you're not um, leaving out concerns or situations that they might be dealing with that perhaps the legislature isn't anticipating. Sure. Um, John, before, before you get into the details of what's going on in the committee, uh, I do want to point out that a lot of what is in Senate Bill 3 now was, uh, was also um, uh, in the recommendations made by the Criminal Justice Recodification Committee. So before we introduced legislation on this, uh, we had about a, a two and a half or three year process at, at a minimum uh, that involved a lot of different viewpoints. Um, we had some legislators on the panel, but we also had judges, we had prosecutors, we had uh, uh, defense attorneys, um, and, uh, and I believe the public defender was actually uh, the, the co-chair of the committee, and, uh, and a number of other uh, voices at the table as well. So we took about two years' worth of testimony and, um, and had a lot of community um, input uh, into this. So separate from Senate Bill 3 and whatever has happened on that, um, this is really the culmination of five or six years' worth of, uh, of work uh, from the legislature. Yeah, and, and that is absolutely true, and, and the, the President and I both sat on that uh, recodification committee, um, and we did hear a lot of voices. And But the legislative process is one of those things where uh, it takes, for people to be involved, for people to have an opportunity to express their views and their perspectives and their viewpoints, it takes a little bit of initiative, right? Uh, there will be on the Senate website, there will be announcements about the committee hearings on this bill, what will be heard and when. Uh, all people have to do is reach out to the chairman's office and say, I'd like to give testimony on Senate Bill 3 next week or whenever it's going to be heard. And we make every effort to accommodate people to come in and give that testimony. That's number one. And I encourage anybody who has an interest in this area to follow the process and the, and the progress of the bill on the website so that when you see an opportunity and you think, you know something, they, I can add something there, uh, come on in. And we're more than happy to. And if, for people who don't like to testify, and not everybody likes to get up in front of a, a bunch of smart people and expose themselves to this. Um, just call or write a letter to me or another member of the committee or just come on in and we'll sit knee to knee in my office and hear things. Now that all having been said, there are many, many organizations who are, uh, well, what I will call advocate groups uh, who purport to represent individualized and, and groups of people of similar interest, right? So you've got the Ohio Prosecuting Attorneys Association, they, they represent and advocate for, anybody? <laughs> prosecutors, right? Uh, but you have people in the community controls uh, facilities, you have people in uh, uh, halfway houses, you have uh, actual prisoner, former prisoner, ex, 
offender uh, advocacy groups, all of whom come forward and, and try to you know, convey views uh, on a collective basis, which is very, very valuable as well. OhioSenate.gov and OhioHouse.gov is where you can reach out to these folks and, and follow some of this there. Hi. Um, is there any part of this bill that it retroactively reclassifies offenses, and is that something that you all would consider um, in order to uh, improve the situation of folks who have previously gotten low-level drug offenses, and um, like Senator Eklund was talking about, um, how that impacts them in their job search and things like that, wondering if that's on the table. The, it is on the table. Uh, it is not in the bill. Um, and, and when we talk about retroactivity, it's important uh, to develop something of a, a, what I would call an operational definition. Okay, what do we mean by retroactive? And there's retroactive and then there's retroactive. A retroactive proposal might mean, okay, somebody who was convicted for, of possession, uh, a felony possession charge some time ago, is now in prison. And if we pass this bill, one form of retroactivity might say we allow that person, while they're in prison, to a petition the judge who sentenced them to resentence them to a misdemeanor instead of the felony that's currently on their record. Well, that's not a bad idea, but it has difficulties, obviously, because there's no assurance that such a person will have gone through the, the rehabilitative programming that the bill calls for for somebody who gets sentenced to a misdemeanor. So we'd have to work on that. But if by retrospect, retroactive, you mean somebody who is already out of prison for having served time for a, a possession offense, uh, is trying to get on with their lives, and uh, is otherwise clean and law-abiding, uh, can we allow that person to come in and petition and demonstrate to the judge that since I've been out of prison, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, please change my felony conviction to a, uh, a misdemeanor. That's a different form of, of retroactivity and maybe is a little bit easier to do. And there's always the issue of getting records sealed or expunged, which we did in, in House Bill, uh, sorry, Senate Bill 66 last year. We expanded opportunities for people to do that as well. And certainly somebody who has been in the past convicted of a, a drug possession felony uh, should perhaps be thinking in those terms as well. And, and I would say, uh, as an add-on to that, that uh, to, to some degree you have to um, um, sometimes take baby steps and get what you think uh, people will agree to now. But, but my personal perspective, and, and you can see this in a firearms-related law that we passed in, I think, 2011 now, it's, it's been a while, um, is that if we have made the decision that something isn't a crime now or is a lower offense, um, then you shouldn't have a prior uh, conviction following you around for the rest of your life with the original penalty for that. So, so we had a very complex uh, series of rules related to how you could carry in a vehicle. And um, it didn't make sense, and it had a lot of traps for the unwary, and so we fixed it one day. And I added a provision uh, to that bill that said, okay, well, if this is something that we agree now shouldn't have been a crime to begin with, um, why should you, just because you did it in 2010 instead of late 2011, be haunted for the rest of your life uh, by this? So, so those are things that we've considered, and, uh, and there is ongoing discussion about that. I don't know where... And I don't think any of us know where that will ultimately land, but, uh, but we are certainly open to um, working through that. Before we move on to the next question, Representative House or Zach Klein, anything you want to add? 
other than, you know, I'm a strong advocate mm -hmm. for the retroactive application if, if Senate Bill 3 uh, would uh, become the law of the land in Ohio. I think it's important, uh, as the Senate president highlighted, that if you were just uh, a victim of timing, uh, and you know, 10 years ago or two, or two or three years ago, you committed a crime of low-level drug possession and had the consequence of felony convictions. Uh, if there's an opportunity for that individual to then be now a misdemeanant, I think that's a good thing. And it, uh, it really encompasses and embodies the work that we're trying to do with this bill. And I'm uh, grateful that uh, the chairman and the Senate president are, are thinking and keeping an open mind of how we can create that process, being realistic about the hurdles that do exist just through the procedures of the court system. And retroactive OLBC is all about that because we understand very clearly even why it's a focus now. It's a, it's a matter of who is actually being impacted. We are very clear on that. We know that. Um, it's a difference when you see somebody as your brother, your sister, your child, you want to help versus when you see somebody, um, you know, when we had this war on drugs, you know, and so retroactive is, is very, very important and we will be advocating to ensure that those when the rules are changed that those who have been impacted in the past will have their opportunity to live, you know, mm -hmm. to, live, to, live, to live their life accordingly. Another question. Uh, my thanks to everyone on the panel, first of all, for your, your work and attention uh, to this important issue. But here's my question. Why treat drug use as a crime at all? Why not just treat it as a public health problem? Uh, Portugal decriminalized the use and possession of all drugs in 2002, and the results have been outstanding. It surprises me there isn't more conversation about this because they have dramatically fewer overdose deaths, less rates of HIV and hepatitis infections, lower crime, et cetera. And they took all the money that they used to spend on prisons and police, deployed it to providing treatment, and the results are amazing. Isn't it time to make an even more fundamental change in how we approach drugs? Because they really are a public health problem. Who wants to start? Yeah. So A, I, Stephanie House, totally agree with you, right? Um, the problem is, I mean, and I think this is, the, the, the issue is of you got to understand where we are and who is at the table setting the agenda. We are, we are this is, we're in it for the long haul, right? I, we, we're just in it in the long haul. And but we have partners right now, um, the leadership, you know, in the Senate, you know, president, in the House, in the governor, who are beginning to have an understanding um, of how we should treat people who are dealing with addiction. Um, and so we just have to continue to share stories, educate um, our lawmakers um, about the opportunities that we can provide for our society. We are not there yet here in 2019, but I think, you know, through time and through experiences, you know, we're taking these ba baby steps to truly try to help people who are fa facing addiction. And I think the first important baby step is recognizing that addiction is a brain disease and, and really crafting an addiction model um, that treats it as such. Because let's face it, you know, addiction is not new. It's plagued communities of color. It's plagued rural America for decades. And now that we, uh, it has moved into a suburban problem, folks are paying more attention to it. Uh, so it would be uh, remiss of us to build a model that, for example, is just opioid based because methamphetamine, if you talk to law enforcement, is on the rise. Uh, so what, what is the drug of tomorrow? So we have to be, I think, forward thinking to build a model that treats mental health and drug addiction, not just, for example, an opioid-based model. Senator Eklund, President Abhoff. I am not in favor of 
decriminalizing the use of drugs. Um, because I think it's, it, it, it writes with too broad of a stroke, okay? Uh, there are circumstances where the possession or use of, of drugs, I think, is uh, a social, uh, a, a, a breach, if you will, of something of a, of a social contract that we all have with each other uh, to do what we can to remain productive and contributing citizens to our society. Um, but I rather think, so, so rather than just blanketly, you know, drugs are all legal, fine. Uh, I think that uh, leaves something to be desired because it's too, too, too broad of a brush. Uh, better, it seems to me, to address the fact, the fact of what I just said, and I believe it to be a fact, that one size fits none, right? So uh, criminalizing <clears throat> uh, the, the residue in a, in a, in a cocaine pipe the way you would prosecute somebody who's got a trunk full of heroin is not the way to go. So I think we need to be a little bit more discerning than we have been, and I think a little bit more discerning than just a blanket legalization would turn out to be. And, and this is not an answer to your question, uh, and I am opposed to, to that, um, and I would, I would second what, what Senator Eklund said, but um, I, I do think it's important that you don't overshoot the mark when you're making public policy. And um, one of the reasons that I was opposed to issue one, um, the primary reason was because I thought it had really overshot the mark. Uh, and I looked at the uh, experience that they had in California after a similar ballot issue as, uh, as sort of a guidepost as to where that would lead Ohio. And in California, um, I believe they described the results as a public health disaster in the Wall Street Journal a few years ago. Um, they anticipated that it would save incredible amounts of money and, and the numbers that they saved in the budget weren't remotely close to what was projected. Um, they ended up, I think, in some instances with essentially tent cities of, of uh, former um, offenders uh, with uh, drug needles uh, everywhere. Um, they ended up with significantly higher rates of property crime and other offenses uh, that in part feed the drug habit. And so, um, from, from my perspective, uh, and, and everyone else might not share this, uh, but uh, I, I think that it's important that you um, take the time very carefully to weigh the potential consequences of what you're going to pass as a legislature and be confident that it actually is the right policy and that it actually will work the way that you want it to, and that sometimes when you do too much too fast, you end up in a very different place than you expected to be. I'm going to try this again. Or Emilio or Sonia. Yes, she's got the next question for us. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much. I'm really grateful to all of you for wanting to take on this issue and this problem. I just want to back up and remind us that we have 50,000 people incarcerated in Ohio at a cost of more than $1.3 billion to the state. It's three times more than it was a few years ago. It's the 13th highest among states. So I understand, um, Senator Abhoff, your concern about overreaching, but I would say we've really overreached with the current set of policies we have. And then we turn around and say we can't clean up the lead in our buildings, we can't invest in childcare. So I want to know, um, I'm concerned that SB3 has too many exceptions and might not make a meaningful dent in that 50,000 prison population. And I guess I'd like to hear from all of the folks on the stage how you're going to make sure that we actually make a meaningful dent in this overspending, overcrowded, over-incarceration society that we have. Thanks. Mm -hmm. 
Well, uh, if, if I may, it's a, it's, a, it's a great question, okay, and I think we've been making efforts over the course of the last eight and a half or nine years, much of which has been driven by that desideratum, if you will. Um, but what are we doing here, all right? Remember what we're dealing with. We're dealing with drug possession offenses. And in point of fact, the number of people who have been going to prison for drug possession offenses has been steadily decreasing just over the time that I've been in the General Assembly, okay? It's, it's maybe it's too high. But of that 50,000, it's not half of them are there for drug possession charges, all right? So we need to quantify where that stands and, and get a real handle on, you know, what is the significance of drug possession sentencing or drug trafficking sentencing, for that matter, uh, to the population in prison. Um, Obviously, over the course of time, even without Senate Bill 3, I think it's fair to say, in many jurisdictions, many courts, many common police courts, have taken it upon themselves to do things and, and develop creative programs designed to keep these folks out of prison. Uh, I must tell you, uh, I was not moved to, to sponsor Senate Bill 3 in the belief that it's going to, you know, Keep, take 20,000 people out of our prison population. That was not my motivation. Um, if it has that effect, I think that would be great. If it has some effect, and I think it will, but that was not the motivation. And uh, uh, I hope it's not the expectation because then everybody's expectations will be disappointed. And I hate to be disappointing. <laughs> Thank you. I, I think that if you go back and take a look at House Bill 86 and, and, and a lot of the legislation that's passed since then, um, it has not decreased the prison population to the extent that we wanted it to. It has decreased the prison population, and it's lower now than it was when, when John and I joined the legislature, um, but, uh, but not by the number we expected. But at the time that we passed it, I think that we expected it to creep up from 50 or 51,000 to 53 or 54,000, and now we're at about 49.5, so. 48,872, as a matter of fact. So a little bit better than I thought. Uh, uh, it's been a good week. Better than I thought. <laughs> um, um, so I, I think that it, it has had a positive effect. It has not had um, a dramatic one, uh, but it saved, I, I believe I've seen calculations from, from Americans for Prosperity or the Buckeye Institute that said that um, they think it saved the state about $500 million over that span as well. Yeah. Again, I, I, don't think that we, I don't think that we start from the idea that we should set criminal law based on how much money we think it'll cost or how much money we think it'll save. What we try to do is look at the offenses and make sure that the penalties match up with the nature of the offense. And I think that what we're talking about in Senate Bill 3 is a recognition that too many penalties don't match up with the nature of the offense and that that's wrong because it's wrong, not because it costs us more money, not because it leads to some specific number uh, in, of people in prison or not, but because each one of those people ought to be um, facing the penalty that's appropriate for their offense. And there is nothing, and the argument that we've sort of made internally in, in the Republican caucus is there's nothing conservative about putting people in prison who don't belong there. Um, that's, that's at least not my vision of what it is to be a conservative. And, uh, and so we've tried to do um, what, what I call smart on crime uh, approaches. Instead of saying we're tough on crime or we're weak on it, it's not about being tough or weak. It's about making sure that things match up 
with people's behavior and that you're not punishing when you shouldn't be and that you're giving new opportunities to people to turn their lives around when, uh, when they can benefit from that. I just wanted to mention that there was a report actually that I think you're referencing by Americans for Prosperity, the Buckeye Institute, and the Alliance for Safety and Justice, which was a group that backed issue one. So this is really a, a bipartisan, wide-ranging group of people who said that what exactly what you said, that while these measures have tried to lower the prison population, they haven't been as effective as, as the group was hoping that they would be. Representative House and Zach Klein, anything you'd like to add? So what you're talking about of trying to have different investments uh, to go to other things that Ohioans would want. Um, I think we we have work to do in that in, in that regards. Uh, but but the opportunity that's in front of us, um, I think there is a huge opportunity to have better data collection. This is one of the things that is evidently clear. We do not do a really good job in collecting the data about what we're doing you know, who actually has all the mental, who needs mental health treatment when they're in incarceration, where do they go afterwards, you know, and with the new director, and I guess to, this is to the governor's credit, getting directors who are leading agencies and the new director of the DRC is a person that recognizes we have a lot of information, but we don't know what it is and who's doing what. Um, and what data does is tells a story about what's working, what's not working, so that we can, we as legislators can then interpret that to then have uh, continuing to create laws, as the president indicated, that will show or demonstrate we are giving people the right punishment for those who need to be punished and giving the people who need the help and support they need to, to be better, if that makes sense. We, it's in the process, I would just say. That's my short answer. In placing the unknown of the effect on the criminal ODRC and the, and the justice system, the penal system aside, uh, because it is an unknown at this point without doing the analysis, um, it is a significant step forward just to get rid of the collateral sanctions associated with a felony conviction for low-level drug possession. And when you say collateral sanctions, you're talking about the things that... Barriers to housing, yes. barriers to employment, just because you're, you're addicted to drugs or are afflicted by addiction. Uh, that in itself, to me, is a significant step forward in reforming the criminal justice system, not to mention strengthening uh, with the right resources and support the drug court process, the, the supporting process to get folks uh, into the treatment that they, they desperately need. I think we have time for one more question. Yes, um, <laughs> it's not really a question, it's more a support, and it's in the form of a log, if you will, on this fire of change that I'm witnessing here, and I commend all of you for your support in getting this started. But 11 years of working with Towards Employment in the capacity of a workshop facilitator, I can tell you firsthand, I see them coming out of prison, excited, all prepared for a new life, and then I see them for the first time filling out an application. And I see them for the first time getting their background check, which they've already served time for back again. And I see that saddening look. And then I see them trying to learn how to interview and fill out an application that says, no drugs, no felons. So I'm telling you this to let you know that these are real people who are really trying to make a difference in their lives. And we are successful because we understand what they're looking for. And we need you to understand that. And they're just not numbers. They're individuals who are attached to families. And whether we like it or not, they're part of this community. So I just want to commend you for your work. Keep it up. But let's get the language right. Thank you so much. Amen. Thank you. All right.
right, well, thank you all very much. Today we've been listening to a forum uh, conversation on Ohio Senate Bill 3 featuring Senator John Eklund, Representative Stephanie House, Zach Klein, Columbus City Attorney, and Ohio Senate President Larry Ophoff. Our community partner for today's forum is Towards Employment. Additionally, we welcome guests at tables hosted by the ACLU of Ohio, City Attorney Zach Klein, the Ohio Transformation Fund, and University Hospitals and Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital. We thank all of you for being here today. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you all, Senator Eklund, Representative House, Zach Klein, President Ophoff. It's been great to be here. Thanks. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.